There are a lot of mysteries in astronomy. Think about dark matter, dark energy, where did the universe come from? The big questions. But there are some other mysteries that are very exciting and it feels like we're making pretty rapid progress on them and we may get them answered within, I don't know, my lifetime. And one of these is the mystery of fast radio bursts. These were first discovered back in 2007, where astronomers started noticing that the universe was having these very bright flashes in radio waves. And they weren't sure what was causing them. They're very tricky to track down because they flash once and then they don't repeat, although some have repeated. And so a new piece of research came out this week that I found really exciting, which is that astronomers were able to tie together the merger of two neutron stars, a kilonova, with a fast radio burst. They were the same object. And this might be an explanation for what is some of the fast radio bursts that are out there, but probably not all of them. So my guest today is Dr. Clancy James, who is a professor at Curtin University in Australia. He worked on the paper that linked these two phenomena together. And we have a long conversation about the research that they made, the observations, the discoveries, and then a lot of time trying to just figure out and understand what fast radio bursts are, what causes them, and sort of what the future holds for the astronomy of fast radio bursts. So if you're interested in this mystery and you want some kind of payoff where it really feels like we're making progress and we should get an answer to one of the big mysteries in astronomy, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. All right, here's the interview. So it was news to me that a second neutron star collision had been discovered. Was this not widely announced or had I just missed it? Well, I think that the novelty, um, as far as the press, had somewhat, somewhat worn off. As far as um, physics goes, you do something, you know, or the press goes, you do something once. And there was a further detection back in 2017. And that was spectacular, right? The first bio-neutron yeah. star detection. Not only was it the detection of the neutron star merger, which was a fantastic um, advance for gravitational wave astronomy, but we saw the optical signature of it. We saw the gamma ray signature of it. People were following up the radio remnant for weeks, months afterwards. So it was the perfect event, right? In fact, it was almost too perfect. We'll be very unlikely to get something that spectacular in the next few years. Right? It was the best kept secret in astronomy. I had no idea that that discovery was going to be made, but there was thousands of co-authors on the original paper. And so like, I don't know how that many people were able to keep a secret that big for that long and that, and that we all sort of found out about it on the same day. I was, um, you know, very impressed. Me, within the astronomy community, it was a fairly open secret that this had happened because of course, yeah. you know, you've got thousands of authors. There's only so many astronomers in the world. Um, yeah. Obviously, the details were kept secret, like necessarily exactly where in the sky this was um, and the precise details of what people had observed. But everyone knew that there was a binary neutron star merger. A supernova had been observed. A lot of the gamma ray alerts go out simultaneously. So, you know, these events get broadcast to the world. So while the publication itself, um, you know, there's always a big announcement. I think it was a pretty open secret. as yeah, yeah. But beforehand, right, no one had any idea it was going to be that big. Right. So let's talk about the the paper that you were commenting on, I guess, the research that your team published in Nature Astronomy is about the, on the one hand, you've got another neutron star collision happening, but it being tied together to a fast radio burst. So that's amazing. 
how did this sort of discovery get made? Yeah, so I think we should make it clear. First of all, we didn't detect the gravitational waves or the fast radio burst. <laughs> right, we were right. Really look at these. So my background is more of an expert from the fast radio burst side, and the remaining co-authors are involved in gravitational wave astronomy with the LIGO collaboration. So they basically understood the gravitational waves. I understood fast radio burst. And there'd been a theory for a long time that when you get a gravitational wave event, in particular two neutron stars merging, either during the merger through the interaction of their magnetic fields or at the point of merger or when there's a later collapse to a black hole, this thing could emit a burst of radio waves. In fact, that was predicted even before fast radio bursts were known to exist, right? So, you know, I am um, in Perth at Curtin University. The uh, remainder of the group is across the river at the University of Western Australia. And, you know, like typical uh, researchers, we mostly stay in our own offices, but we um, had been talking for a while about, hey, you know, we should investigate this. Um, and then there's a new radio telescope coming online, Chime. So this is in Canada. And it's mm-hmm. got a really huge field of view. You know, the problem with most radio telescopes and most telescopes is that they only see a tiny fraction of the sky, maybe, I don't know, a hundred thousandth or less, right? Actually, probably a lot less than that. Um, whereas Chime sees a huge region. And with fast radio bursts, they burst, right? So you can't, you know, if you think one's gone off over there, you can't go back and point later. So we knew that this data was coming out, and we knew that there'd been this run of the gravitational wave observatories, um, LIGO, Virgo, and soon Kagra um, is going to be added to that. And we were really keen to look at the data, right, and try to work out, okay, um, are there any fast radio bursts that can be associated with gravitational wave events? Um, so, soon, so what happened was that uh, LIGO and Virgo had been releasing the gravitational wave event data pretty much as soon as it happened right, within minutes to hours. But Chime was a pretty complex new instrument, and it actually took them about two years to release their catalogue of events. Um, They just really needed to understand their beam pattern, how to, you know, they knew they detected fast radio bursts, but they wanted to know where they came from, how strong they were, right? So they said, we've got a thing, but what's the details of that thing? Um, And so as soon as the Chime data came out, and we'd already had a student, Alex, she was the lead author on that paper, and she was pretty immediately able to say, well, hang on a second, um, the only fast radio burst in the Chime catalogue that sort of coincidence in time and space with any gravitational event is this one, right? gravitational wave 1904-25 and FRB 2019-04-25A, right? Um, let's have a look at it. You know, this is kind of interesting um, because the only gravitational wave event that it was coincident with was this binary neutron star merger. And so this paper was basically came about because we took a more in-depth look into that event. And it turns out that, okay, it's not a home run, right? It's not guaranteed that the FRB came from this event, but it's a lot of really, really interesting hints that it did. So that was the gist of the paper. So then, I mean, what do you think is going on that generated the fast radio burst? Well, I can give you the general answer. So our, our theory, which is one of a few options, but our theory is that when these binary neutron stars merged, they created what's known as a supermassive neutron star. So neutron stars can only get so heavy before they collapse into a black hole, right? You take a neutron star, you add matter to it, it actually gets smaller, gets denser due to the extra gravity. And then at some point, it just goes into a black hole. Now, if this neutron star is spinning, and they'll all spin, and some spin incredibly quickly, um, keep in mind that a neutron star is only about 10 kilometers 
across. So if it spins very quickly, the spin can help counteract the gravity. So you can actually get maybe an extra 20% of mass onto a neutron star if it's spinning very fast. The thing is, if it's spinning very fast, neutron stars will have magnetic fields and this will act as a braking mechanism. There's also some other mechanisms that might act to slow down the rotation. And if that rotation slows down enough, or maybe there's extra matter from the collision that then falls back on the neutron star, it'll collapse to a black hole then. So what we think happened is that this collapse occurred at about two and a half hours after the merger, and that's what generated the burst. Now, the reason why we think a neutron star collapsing to a black hole um, creates a burst is that this sort of black holes have no hair, right? The only properties that general relativity predicts for black holes are charge, mass, and spin. However, neutron stars are complicated things, and in particular, they've got very strong magnetic fields. I mean, incredibly strong. So trillions of times the um, field strength of magnets here on Earth. And so, but a black hole doesn't. So as soon as the neutron star collapses to a black hole, this magnetic field has to be shared, right? So you go from having some insanely strong magnetic field with, I forget what the energy density of the magnetic field is, but it's, you know, more energy dense than nuclear bombs are, right? It's, it's incredible, to nothing. So it's this huge change of magnetic field. And um, for all of your listeners who recall their university courses on electrodynamics, I'm sure heaps of them have, yeah. <laughs> then a changing magnetic field produces an electric field, right? It's also the same principle that you get with electric turbines, right? You um, spin a magnet and you generate a field in your wires. And so this huge change in magnetic field should induce a strong electric field, which could produce something like a, like a fast radio burst. So that's our proposed mechanism. And, and so like... The two neutron stars are coming together. They're in the process of merging into this super massive neutron star. But then because it has this magnetic field, it's breaking the rotation. And once the rotation comes down to the point, it can no longer remain in as a, as a not black hole, turns into a black hole. Some of its magnetic field, I guess, gets just gobbled up with the black hole and the remaining part is released out into space. Do I, do I understand what's going on or what you, yep, the mechanism that's, is? That, that's pretty much it. Okay, yeah. all right. So what I will say is though, when the merger happens, the merger itself only takes of order a second or two. Right? So very quickly, you'll go from two neutron stars being very close to each other, and in the final stage of the merger, they'll get very deformed, right? Because the tidal forces will be extreme at that point. And then they'll fairly quickly form into a new neutron star, you know, a fairly round object spinning very fast. And partly also we expect the magnetic fields in that merger might even make the magnetic field stronger as well. So that could be another aspect. Now, Chime has detected thousands of yeah. fast radio bursts, um, mostly one-off events, a couple of repeating events. And so I've, I've got to think that this maybe helps explain some, but not all. What, what do you think the population of fast radio bursts are explained by merging neutron stars? So this is the million dollar question in fast radio burst science, right? The question of do all fast radio bursts repeat? Are there multiple kinds of fast radio bursts? Um, so this is going to be a long answer here. My right. bet is at the moment, I honestly don't know what the truth is. I will say it's very unlikely that events like the binary neutron star merger could explain all fast radio bursts. It's not excluded, but there are a few fast radio bursts, one in particular 
2012-11-02. That's been observed since 2012, and that repeats quite rapidly. Now, it is possible to have, let's say, two neutron stars or maybe a white dwarf neutron star merging that then produces a you know massive neutron star that takes either a very long time to decay before forming a black hole or maybe a stable even. And it's possible that, you know, a fast rotating neutron star with magnetic fields, um, we expect also to produce uh, things like fast radio bursts. In fact, pretty much regardless of the details, we are fairly sure that neutron stars are responsible for fast radio bursts one way or the other. So it is in theory possible that all fast radio bursts could be the result of neutron star mergers, but it's very unlikely. Um, what we expect is that a large fraction of fast radio bursts, in fact, the vast majority, probably come from, let's say, young neutron stars formed in supernova, and then the gravitational burst, the, the binary neutron star merger event rate is perhaps only 1% or so of hmm. fast radio bursts. Now, you said, you know, you believe neutron stars are involved in fast radio bursts. So so what is the, I mean, it's, so, it's such a weird thing, right, that, that we've only really known about these since, what, 2007, uh, hard to pin down because they d- didn't seem to repeat, except there's been a few occasionally, and yet it's giving off enough signals that it feels to me like the answer is soon. It's not dark matter. It's not dark energy. Like, this will be solved in our lifetime, I think. So what do you think is the main mechanism that is causing fast radio bursts at this point? Yeah, so probably the biggest hint came from an event in our galaxy a couple of years ago now. I'm probably going to get that wrong. Uh, Two plus minus two years where um, a neutron star with a very strong magnetic field known as a magnetar, right? There's no hard cutoff for what is or isn't called a magnetar. It's just that we detect most neutron stars via the bursts of radio waves they give off. Um, you know, they, they pulse, right? So they spin around rapidly and they give off regular pulsations and we call them pulsars. A magnetar is a neutron star where the energy that it gives off is mostly X-rays and gamma rays and we see that. Um, and that's how we detect them because they've got extremely strong magnetic fields. So there was one of those in our galaxy. It was a known magnetar and it gave off a burst of X-rays and at the same time, Chime and another instrument, Stair 2, observed a burst of radio waves from it at the same time as x-rays so now this burst of radio waves was similar to a fast radio burst but it was maybe a hundred one hundredth as strong as the weakest fast radio burst and maybe a millionth as strong as the strongest fast radio burst Mm. maybe a hundred millionth as strong so certainly we know magnetars can give off bursts like fast radio burst um, whether or not that means they, they can explain the very strongest, because you know there's a huge difference. A factor of a million, a hundred million is pretty significant. So I think that there's a couple of important clues. One would be able to get um, X-rays or other multi-wavelength observations from an event outside of our galaxy. So maybe something in Andromeda or a galaxy in the nearby universe, because we don't expect X-ray telescopes to be sensitive enough to see um, X-rays from a fast radio burst at, let's say, a a billion light years away, which is a typical distance we see to them. But I think that would be one of the key observations we need. But it seems like a a difference in scale, kind of like a nova compared to a supernova. You know, with a nova being a fairly regular event as a white dwarf is feeding on some partner compared to a supernova where that white dwarf explodes or 
another kind of star explodes. Uh, so is the, I'm trying to think like, is, was this flash that came from the Milky Way a hint to a larger mechanism that is more catastrophic that's happening farther away? Well, perhaps. So once, when we talk about, you know, mechanisms producing fast radio bursts, there's two levels, right? You can talk about the macroscopic properties, like is it a magnetar, is it two neutron stars merging? Um, and in that sense, no, it's not because, um, the, you know, the macroscopic properties of how neutron stars merge might be quite different to how, um, you know, the population of magnetars out there. Um, as far as the detailed physics of it goes, it gets complicated. So certainly I think that, but so the problem is most of the repeating fast radio bursts that we see, um, we detect them as much, um, much fainter pulses, right? So most of the bursts we see um, are because we'll take some huge telescope like FAST, this 500 meter telescope in China, point to a repeating fast radio burst and get a thousand bursts from it, right? Because there's far more low energy bursts than there are high energy bursts. But most of the fast radio bursts we see are bright, distant things where we just, it, that may be that repeating multiple times, we just don't know. So I think that one hint that we can actually get would be more coming from the radio side if we could have more sensitive radio observations of more distant fast radio bursts and say, okay, it looks like these rare bright ones, which might come from binary neutron star mergers, right? So the rate of all fast radio bursts is much too high to ex be explained by binary neutron star mergers. However, the rate of the very brightest ones could be, right? And the one that we observed was a fairly bright one, not super bright, but it was fairly bright. Um, I, mean, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible without this multi-messenger astronomy. The fact that you have gravitational waves to set as a baseline for how many of these kinds of mergers you should be detecting, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's, it's actually really cool now. Um, you know, astronomy started only in optical, right? And then it progressed through to radio and then X-rays, gamma rays. In the last decade, we've had both gravitational waves and neutrinos. Right? We've seen both. Now, and these are both new kinds of messages from the universe. So this sort of multi-messenger astronomy, it, it's really cool. You work, but one of the interesting things is you work with quite different groups, right? The kind of scientific culture that you get in, let's say, neutrino astronomy or gravitational wave astronomy is really different to what you get with, let's say, radio astronomy. And so it's almost like a sociology experiment to <laughs> collaborate. Right. That's interesting. Um, where one group has sort of tried and true methods for observing the sky and they're trying to sort of squeeze every piece of information out while the other groups are still in the nascent stages. They're just excited that they're even making these detections at all. Yep. Well, I don't say it's almost the other the... way around. So oh, really? The gravitational wave people um, tend to be quite a bit more careful, right? So, okay, I'm, I'm going to make some broad generalizations here. Um, I've worked in both fields. I used to work as a neutrino astronomer in my previous position now um, in radio. And so I'd characterize radio astronomy as, cool, look, there's a thing. Let's tell people about the thing. You know, that's, uh, at least that's very much fast radio burst at world. Then in um, gravitational wave or neutrino astrophysics, you get these large collaborations that build a single experiment for one specific purpose. And you might get, as you said, you know, hundreds of thousands of scientists working together. And they want to be very careful about what they tell the world because they've got a lot riding on it, right? They're the one experiment that can make the measurement. 
um, they've got one very complicated apparatus and they want to, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's and, you know, say, okay, we detected, we think we detected this at this level of significance and here's our simulations, you know, we compare the measurements to that. And so when we were producing this work, actually one of the interesting things was that there was already a collaboration between Chime and LIGO to look for fast radio bursts from LIGO events, but they were doing it in a different way, uh, a different search method, um, which was actually, you know, it was a perfectly valid one. It just turned out that our way of looking for things happened to find something interesting and there didn't, but um, there was some politics involved in that. Right, right. I mean, there's a couple of ways this seems to trend, either a bunch of separate observations end up being the same thing. So I think about, say, quasars and Seaford galaxies and other active galaxies. You're really just seeing the quasar at different angles, and it turns out that all of these things are the, are actually the same thing. And compared to, say, the search for missing regular matter in the universe, where you're like a little bit of it is intergalactic gas, a little bit of it is right you add up all the slices and it ends up being 100%. So so do you th- which way do you think this is going to break? I think I would be very surprised if fast radio bursts were produced by anything other than um neutron stars or maybe neutron stars merging with something else. There's a chance it could be white dwarf white dwarf mergers as well perhaps um, if they're highly magnetized. But I think my guess is that it's all going to involve neutron stars one way or another, but there's going to be very different things happening to the neutron stars, right? Some of them will be newly created, highly magnetized neutron stars born in supernova. Others might be neutron stars that have recently merged or, um, or the merger itself, right, which is our hypothesis for this event. Um, but I think it's going to be very difficult to get something other than a neutron star involved in this. And that's simply for the fact that um, these bursts, you know, they resemble pulsar pulses to a small extent, right? We know neutron stars through pulsars can produce um, sort of order millisecond scale bright radiation. And we also know that whatever produces these things has to be very small, right? So if you're going to produce something that lasts, let's say, 10 microseconds, then thought, which is the shortest duration of some of the fast radio bursts we've seen, then you need the fundamental object to be able to turn on and off in 10 microseconds or so. And in 10 microseconds, information can only travel, oh, whatever it is, about three, I'm trying to remember, the speed of light is about um, three kilometers per, no, 300 meters per month, that's about three kilometers or so. So five, 10 kilometers or something like that. Um, so you can't get an object the size of even a white dwarf or the size of the earth producing emission on structures of order, um, let's say 10 kilometers. Right, right. Um, so then, I mean, when this first started, astronomers were like, I saw this flash of radio waves. And then later on, someone goes like, I saw one too. And for a while, they're like, are we sure this is actually happening in space and not happening here on Earth? And eventually, they got to the point, they're like, yes, we're sure this is happening in space and, and he's outside the galaxy. Do you think with observatories like Chime, we're getting a sense of how often objectively fast radio bursts are happening in the universe? Well, yes and no. So I think we are getting a good sense of it now, but not just through Chime. So Chime has the biggest uh, number of fast radio bursts. 
but they don't have great angular resolution. So, um, so the main observable with a fast radioverse is it what's known as its dispersion measure. So this is basically where you've got a lot of gas in the universe. The radio waves um, travel more slightly less fast than the speed of light in vacuum through the gas. And in particular, the low frequencies travel a bit more slowly. And so you measure the time delay between your high frequencies and your low frequencies. You know, it arrives at a curve like this. And then you can measure how much gas it's gone through. So time obviously measures that. Um, and there's a relationship between the distance uh, to the fast radio burst and the amount of gas it's gone through due to the average density of the universe, right? So this is known as the Macar relation. Um, however, the universe isn't, you know, smooth. It's quite clumpy. Um, and so there's a lot of scatter about this. So when Chai measures the dispersion measure, it gives you some sort of idea of the distance to the things, but it's a bit hazy. So the experiment I'm involved with, um, which is known as CRAFT on ASCAP, which is a radio telescope here in Western Australia, that's been, that's able to localize a fast radio burst and work out which galaxy it's come from. And so you know the distance exactly. And so you can do some more detailed population studies there. So yeah, so doing that, and um, so using data from ASCAP and a few other instruments, we are starting to get an idea of how often these things are occurring. And we'll bandy around numbers like um, 100,000 per cubic gigaparsec per year, which 100,000 sounds like a lot, yeah. but a cubic gigaparsec is a huge... That's a very big... Well, the universe. I mean, That's give me some universe. kind of comparison. Like, how would you compare that to, say, Type 1A supernova? Oh, I would say, I know that. I don't know the number for Type 1A supernova. I know the number for binary neutron star mergers. Sure, which is fine. Which is, which is about 1,000 per um, cubic gigaparsec per year. So, so many more yes. fast radio bursts than binary neutron star mergers. Yes, exactly. Which right. is, you know, what I mentioned earlier about 1% of right. fast radio bursts might be explained by cataclysmic events like binary neutron star mergers. So you get to design the ultimate machine to answer this mm -hmm. question. What kind of a machine is it? Or is it already a, a kilometer of radio telescope spread between Australia and South America, South Africa. Oh yeah. That, that, that'll do it quite nicely. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's in the works. Well, good news. That's already been started. Yeah. But oh, at last. Yeah. So I think there's two things you actually want to do here, right? One thing that we're working on is actually detecting things in the nearby universe, because it's all very well to detect a fast radio burst at, you know, 6 billion light years away, you know, emitted at half the age of the universe. I mean, that's kind of cool. But then if you want to study the properties of where it came from, it's super far away. You know, you need to, we're currently writing proposals for the Hubble Space Telescope just so we can get a decent picture of the galaxy that some of these things are coming from, right? Um, because the eight meter telescopes on the ground don't really do it. So this is, <laughs> this is tough. Whereas if you can detect a fast radio burst that's coming from, I don't know, the large Magellanic Cloud or something like that, then you can turn all sorts of instruments towards an X-ray, telescopes, and, and so on, and then really study um, the details and uncover what the heck these things really are. So I think one ultimate telescope would be one that monitored pretty much the entire sky all the time at a pretty good sensitivity so that if and when a fast radio burst does go off in the nearby universe, say within let's say 10 million light years or less, mm -hmm. you know, nearby galaxy, then we're guaranteed to get it. And then we can get, have a high enough angular resolution to point back, find out exactly where it came from. 
and be able to say, oh yes, it came from this star forming region or that globular cluster or really in the center of that galaxy. So, so is it like a SWIFT? Like I think about the SWIFT telescope that is searching for gamma ray bursts that is sort of watching the sky with one resolution. It detects the 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 gamma ray burst and then swings around as quickly yeah. as it can and starts to record as much data as possible. Is it a space telescope, but in this case, it's tuned for relatively nearby fast radio bursts? Um, it wouldn't be a space telescope, but it absolutely would be, it would be ground-based, but it absolutely would have that idea. It would be a relatively low sensitive sensitivity instrument that could see the entirety of the sky. So there's already um, one instrument a bit like that. So STAIR 2 I mentioned earlier in the US has that principle. It needs to be a bit more sensitive um, because of course there's more low energy fast radio bursts than there are high energy bursts. So it'd be good to get of order a hundred times as sensitive as that. But yes, you would, um, you do want to tune it more for total field of view to make sure that if something occurs, you get that. Right, because they're coming randomly from everywhere exactly. across the sky. Yeah, you, that's... Um, I think there's one of my favorite movies, Twister from a long time ago, when they talk about tornadoes, they have, have a line. Like you can't explain it. You can't predict it. It just happens. And I think you can apply that to fast right. first. That's, that's gotta be tough. Like normally with a telescope, right? You want to book time on the telescope, you point at your target, you gather data, but, but every time with fast radio bursts, it's like, well, it's already happened. Yeah. And well, actually I think this is a little bit of a problem in the field at the moment because we know that some fast radio bursts do repeat, right? So now you are an astronomer and you want to study fast radio bursts. I think, one vital question for the field is to take fast radio bursts that look like they don't repeat and really hammer them with the most sensitive telescopes to be absolutely sure they're not repeating, right? Because if you stare at a fast radio burst that you think doesn't repeat, you look at it with an incredibly powerful telescope and it still doesn't after hundreds of thousands of hours. I mean, that's really interesting, right? That really seems like a once-off thing. Um, the problem is that now you're on a time assignment committee for a telescope and someone says, we've got this fantastic telescope and we'd like to point it at something for thousands of hours and see if we, and, you know, we probably won't see anything, but maybe we'll see one thing, right? But then you've got somebody else who says, ah, oh, well, we've got this rapidly repeating fast radio burst. We're going to point at it. We're going to get a thousand bursts. We're going to talk a lot about the burst and see all sorts of interesting things. And we might not actually learn anything fundamental from that, but nonetheless, it's going to be really interesting because we'll see lots of stuff. Um, and that'll be the observation you get. And so it's almost got this observational bias in the field at the moment where we know a lot about some of the repeating fast radio bursts, and there's a lot of apparently once-off things, which we'd like to know more about, but we don't. So your thousand hours of JWST time to stare at a one-time fast radio burst location hasn't been accepted yet? <laughs> well, there's two. The one that we haven't um, been accepted is a Hubble Space Telescope time to look for a host galaxy. But no, it would be and it would be fast, right? This huge telescope in China that you would want. You'd want to take that, mm. point it at an apparently once-off fast radio burst that looks like a once-off burst, and maybe see something. And if you did, that would be great. Um, and also, if you saw nothing, that would be great. But in the history of astronomy, papers that report nothing don't uh, get as much hype as well. Things. So then, is the fast telescope the perfect machine for? If you did catch a fast radio burst happening, is that the best tool on the planet right now to actually study the data? If you know where it's going to come from, yes. So it's by far the most sensitive. Um, the problem is that it only sees a tiny, tiny fraction of the sky. So it's 
not very good for finding fast radio bursts in the first place. Um, they've looked quite a long time, and I think it's only four fast radio bursts they've identified that weren't known beforehand. Um, one of them is a very interesting one. It's great. But the other problem is that even though it's got reasonable angular resolution because it's so huge, it only sees a small patch of the sky, there's so many galaxies and other things in the universe that within that little patch it's looking, it's got no chance of identifying the host galaxy. So um, it's a perfect instrument for doing follow-up observations where you say, okay, we've, we know that this, there's a fast radio burst here from this galaxy. Let's point fast to it. But it's not perfect for doing the initial observations. Now, I know this is still really early in the speculation side, and we just don't even know what it is. But many astronomical events, especially ones that are this energetic, this far away, have value in helping with cosmology itself, starting to figure out the expansion rate of the universe, figuring out the intervening gas and dust between us and some target. Do you think that fast radio bursts can play some kind of role in larger cosmological questions? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say this is probably the only thing they're guaranteed to be able to do. Hmm. Uh, and this is sort of what we're working on at the moment. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, fast radio bursts trace out the amount of stuff in the universe with the amount of gas they go through. And there's two basic questions we're trying to answer here. One is exactly what is the value of the Hubble constant, right? So H0, so how fast is the universe expanding? So the, the background here is that we have two very good measurements of the Hubble constant. One uses a cosmic microwave background. You do a multi-parameter uh, fit to that, and you work out how fast the universe was expanding back at a redshift of about 3,000-ish when the CMB was emitted. So an early universe measurement of the Hubble constant. And oh, I hope I get this right, about 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsec from memory. It depends um, which, which time you're measuring it. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. we have the supernova 1A measurements um, in the well, I say nearby universe, the redshift less than one universe typically, and they get a value of about 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Um, and there's enough precision on each of these measurements that they're mutually incompatible with about a one in a million chance of them being this far apart if they're measuring the true value. So there's two basic ways to explain this, right? One is to say that there's something dodgy with the measurements. Um, in particular, supernova 1A measurements, there's a di you know this cosmic distance ladder, right? We, you know, to say how far it is to this supernova, well, you say, well, this supernova was that bright and we calibrate the brightness via these observations with these Cepheid variables and these Cepheid variables, we calibrate that with things in our galaxy. And, you know, there's, there's multiple steps in this distance ladder. So there could be various systematics in that process, but there's lots of people who have studied this in a lot of detail. And, you know, they've shifted around the calibrations a bit as time's gone on, but it really looks like these two measurements are discrepant. And the other explanation is that there's something weird going on in cosmology, that at some point between the early universe and, and now, the universe um, changed, maybe some phase transition that caused um, an extra speed up in the expansion. I mean, that's new physics. That would be amazing. And so with fast radio bursts, um, the relationship between Hubble's constant, you know, we measure the distance to the fast radio burst. From the cosmic microwave background measurements, we have a good idea of the density of the universe, that we measure... Um, the density times a Hubble parameter squared is the uh, measurement that CMB makes. And so you can test the value of Hubble constant through that. So that's a pretty high precision measurement, and we're nowhere near that yet. In particular, there's a lot of systematics we need to pin down. But 
in principle with only maybe 500 to 1,000 localized fast radio bursts, we could resolve this question. So ah. that's sort of one of the things we're working for at the moment. That's really interesting. So just by watching how the fast radio burst moves through the intervening material, you start to get at a sense of the density of the universe at different times. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you make it sound uh, really cool, but in the end, it's a little bit like, you know, you can imagine a graph, right? Here's distance, here's mm -hmm. amount of stuff, and the Hubble constant is the slope of the line that you measure, right? You I, know, I, it, yeah, I promise my audience will find this extremely cool. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, the other important aspect, and I think this is where fast radio bursts are guaranteed to be able to um, resolve this, is to really study exactly where gas around galaxies is, right? So if you think, you know, you talked about the stuff in the universe earlier, well, you know, you've got dark energy, which is 70% of the current energy density. There's dark matter, which is about 25%. And then there's, you know, normal stuff, right? You know, the stuff that baryonic matter, this pen you and me are made of, um, is maybe 5%. But of that 5%, only about 0.5% are in stars, you know, the galaxies, the things that we actually see directly, you know, and a little bit more is in the um, condensed gas in galaxies, you know, nebulae and so on that we can observe. Um, a lot of it is in very diffuse, often hot gas, you know, either in the circumgalactic medium, so around galaxies, or in sort of filaments, so over densities in the, you know, the cosmic web, right? If you see these beautiful simulation pictures, where you see this like spidery web-like structure, or in these gigantic voids in between galaxies. And so the way that the gas, you know, and this is complicated, right? You get gas that gets drawn in by the gravity of dark matter and it heats up at some point, and then it might cool down, go into galaxies, but then there'll be supernova in galaxies, black holes spewing matter out, and that will inject more energy and send matter out of the galaxies. And this is known as feedback, this process of cooling gas coming in and then hot energy gas being shot out. and this results in a very complicated structure of gas around and between galaxies we expect, but it's extremely difficult to measure. And that's where we hope fast radio bursts will really be able to tell us where that gas sits. Oh, that's really interesting. So, you know, look into the future. When do you think, you know, when we do a follow on interview and you feel pretty confident now that you've got a good answer for what fast radio bursts are, how long, when, when is the date, do you think? For when we expect to know what fast radio bursts are? Yeah, when do you, you know, because, uh, I don't know, like when I think about the poor people who started trying to figure out dark matter in the 1930s, you know, and they're still at it, you know, almost 100 years later, maybe they're not any closer, maybe they're a little, at least they have better ideas of what it's not. But as I said, you know, early on, I, I really feel like this mystery is unfolding, it's going to give up its secrets one way or another, I think fairly quickly feels like so i'm going to guess in about 10 years right yeah and that's based mostly on the idea that within about 10 years statistically we should probably have detected a fast radio burst in the very nearby universe and there's a couple of other instruments online and um, in particular one called hera that'll be coming online in south africa that's a little bit like chime right you can think of it as chime in the south and of course the southern hemisphere is a great place for studying our own galaxy so it might be that that is going to pick up, you know, not just a very dim, fast radio burst-like thing from a magnetar, but a truly bright event um, that is effectively as powerful as a fast radio burst from the sufficiently nearby universe that we should be able to perform follow-up observations. But as far as I'm aware, what would be really nice, right, 
would be to have a powerful X-ray satellite that could somehow monitor the entire sky at once. Now, we have something like that in gamma rays with the Fermi instrument, but not in X-rays or X-ray telescopes. They do have things that are like mirrors, um, not quite the mirrors that we expect. They deflect the X-rays a tiny amount, but they do have focusing instruments. But they tend to have a very narrow field of view that's got essentially zero chance of seeing anything. But, you know, if you want to get to the old sky monitors and X-rays, then they are fairly insensitive. Right. But I'm right. going to say about 10 years. About but 10 I think years. we'll do cosmology first, right? I think we're going to answer key cosmological questions where we could say, FRBs are great. Don't know what they are, but they told us it's about the universe. Right. Well, that sounds like dark matter and doing gravitational lensing, right? You, we don't know what it is, but it makes a great telescope. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. um, well, James, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for answering all of my questions about fast radio bursts. And when you do figure out what they are, would you let me know? <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks very much, Fraser. All right. Thanks a lot. Yes. Bye. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps our ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Jay Dennis, David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.